The Pace Line is sponsored by Health IQ, an insurance company that helps health-conscious people like runners, cyclists, weightlifters, and vegetarians get lower rates on their life insurance rates. Go to healthiq.com forward slash Pace Line to support the show and see if you qualify. And the Pace Line is supported by LAL Cycling. The coast is calling. LAL Shore Collection embodies the spirit and style of the California coast. All LAL products are crafted right here in Southern California for shipment worldwide. Now, on to the show. Hello, Paceliners. Hottie here. If your pre-ride meal begins in one of these, a microwave, boy, do I have a segment for you. I want to upgrade your breakfast. Fatty and Patrick are also along with discussions on foot pain and fairness in prize money. All that coming up on the Pace Line. Paceline, the podcast on two wheels. Patrick Hottie and Fatty bringing you the official podcast of redkiteprayer.com. Find us there and, of course, anywhere you listen to podcasts, including, of course, Apple Podcasts. Speaking of which, take a second, subscribe, leave us a five-star rating. And if you do that, Hottie will, the next time you ride with him, on the spot, give you a Madison-style slingshot boost, thus, propel- bleh, thus propelling you into Strava stardom. You've given people a, a Madison slingshot boost before, right, Hottie? No, no, no. I'm too weak in the upper body, Fatty. Not a chance. <laughs> I can't I can't pull that thing off. I got one recently, but uh, giving them, uh, yeah, I, I suppose I've done a couple. Not, 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 not a great one, though. Not, not anything Strava-worthy. I okay. figure with your height that you would have the leverage to really give someone <laughs> a, a real zip. Hmm. Well, how about instead I mail them a puppy? <laughs> you, have pu- you have puppies to ship? Fantastic. Uh, well, no, but I could get some. <laughs> There's an endless supply of puppies. Ah, and I'll let people borrow Duke, too. You know, we ought to mention that this is episode 102 of the Pace Line. Three polls, three picks, and I believe that we ought to get rolling, or this is going to be another one of those two-hour episodes. Hottie... Contributor to RKP, how's the Crusher training going, man? How's the Crusher training going? It's oh yeah, it's see, Crusher's like seven months away. What are you talking about? There's no training going. I did do a <laughs> about 117 miler over the weekend, so I, I suppose that's part of the Crusher training. And there's bike prep going on, so I'm getting a bike ready too. Does all that count? Yeah, sure, it, absolutely, it counts. And what are you going to be talking about on the pace line today? Today, uh, one of my favorite things in the world: breakfast and what you eat for that pre-ride or pre-race meal. And has has it ever gone wrong on you? <laughs> Food is my very favorite topic. Patrick, publisher of RKP, how are you doing, man? You got an event on your calendar that you are prepping for? Uh, you mean like a grasshopper, like? This coming weekend, like the grasshopper. This coming weekend, huh? Yeah, you excited. Chileno Valley. I, no, I'm scared. Uh, Esless. <laughs> uh, I've, you know, I've got, I've got neck slash shoulder trouble, uh, spinal oh, no. stenosis, and uh, 
I'm just back from an hour and a half ride and uh, I was in pain by the time I got home. So getting through an 80 mile road race uh, with 8,000 feet of climbing, I, I'm, I, mm, yeah. <laughs> good luck. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, uh, ibuprofen is going to be your post-race best buddy. I might so, be taking it during. Dude, that, that is not cool. You are not supposed to do that. I know. Okay, just so you know, that is not a recommended paceline uh, remedy. So what do you got going on on the on your poll for the paceline today? Pay equity. When it comes to prize lists and races, how do you think women should be compensated relative to men? Ah, uh, another heavy topic. You've been giving us a heavy topics lately, mm. man. I'm I'm sorry. <laughs> Don't be sorry. It's it's the heady stuff that makes us the number one podcast in America. Okay. And next week <laughs> I'll do something lighthearted like the uh, psychedelic overtones of HR Puff and Stuff. Oh, I love that show. Who's your friend when things get rough? HR Puff HR. and Stuff. <laughs> All three of us know it. HR Human Resources Puff and Stuff. Absolutely. <laughs> The oldest podcast in America. <laughs> and of course, I'm Fatty, and I'm going to spend my poll complaining about shoes. Mm. But first, Hottie, lead us out. A few days ago, I did a local invite-only ride, guys, known as the French Toast Ride. Oh. This is an annual get-together put together by my good friend, Dave Yeager. His parents open up their house, feed and support 20 to 25 cyclists, and for breakfast... They make us French toast. It is a delightful way to kick off a 117-mile ride through the hills of Ventura County. And with three strips of bacon and two pieces of French toast in my belly, I went on to have a brilliant day riding and staying with riders who are well into their race fitness. It had to be the French toast. French toast brings up the subject of my paceline poll this week, breakfast. Specifically, that meal right before a race or big ride. It is all so important. One of my favorite trips to Leadville was a time I ran support for a team of half dozen racers. My crowning moment was waking up at 3 a.m., making oatmeal, breakfast meats, and stacks of pancakes. You see, to me, food is mood. And good food means a good mood at the start line. When we watch the tour every summer, one of those go-to features is to send a camera crew around and ask rioters or team chefs what's on the menu for breakfast. Almost always, the first thing they mention is oatmeal or porridge if they're British. And mm. I am no different. It is the food I am most likely to eat before that big day on the bike, oatmeal. Oats are filling and cause no gut issues, plus you can doctor them up to your liking. My oatmeal recipe is a hybrid that comes from Alton Brown of Good Eats fame and a book called Thug Kitchen, written by two vegetarian chefs. It starts with steel-cut oats, which take longer than rolled oats to cook but have a much better chew and as a carbohydrate, a slower burn. I lightly toast the oats in melted butter. On the side, I have boiling water. Once the oats are lightly toasted, I add a quarter cup of quinoa to my one cup of oats. Quinoa adds a little protein. Then I add four cups of warm to boiling water, bring the whole thing to a full boil, boil that is, lower the heat to lower, Cover and cook until water is absorbed. It takes about the same effort as, as making rice. If you can make rice, you can make steel-cut oats. It is very important, about halfway to three-quarters of the way through the cooking process, that a pinch of salt is added. That gives your mush a little flavor. 
The cooking time is equal to the amount of time it takes me to make coffee and prep my bike. When I come back from the garage, my porridge is taken off the heap but remains covered while I prep the toppings. Now, I've tried all sorts of things here, from bananas to raisins to apples and even an egg. But my go-to these days is kind of a peaches and cream theme. It's one half peach from the jar, chopped, walnuts, honey, and a dollop of sour cream or cream cheese. To serve, I spoon some oats into a warm bowl. Make sure that's a warm bowl, otherwise the oats will lose their temperature as they land in your cold ceramic bowl. And immediately, I add a dash of cinnamon. Putting the spice on the warm oats makes the cinnamon release its flavor and fragrance. Then the rest of the aforementioned toppings are added, and there you have it. Hotties, peaches and cream, steel-cut oats with quinoa. Recipe available at RKP in the show notes. So, my question, guys, is what is your... Go to race or pre-ride breakfast. What lengths would you go to to get it? And any stories of getting it wrong? Fatty, uh, I've shared a house with you. Watch <laughs> you eat your pre-ride race. I kind of know the answer to this, but give us your what's your pre-ride or race meal, and has it ever gone sideways on you? Well, before I answer, let me first just say that was the most delicious sounding poll I have ever yeah. heard. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> my pre uh, pre ride pre race breakfast is such a such a bland affair <laughs> compared to what you just described. But I'll say it anyway. I am a real believer in eating the same thing on race day that I do on every day. Um, I which means it's going to be uh, a lot of scrambled eggs with a fair amount of cheese and um, a lot of coffee probably an hour before that. It's a lot of fat, a lot of protein, um, and I just, my stomach does really well with that. I then, I in if you're wondering, well, where are the carbs before a big race? I start hitting the carbs about half an hour before the race begins. That is, you know, I put something in my jersey pocket and I am going to eat another 200 calories of, you know, some kind of bar that I like. We all talked about the bonk breaker bars and how much we like them. That's my right, you know, right before a race begins, I'm eating that. But for breakfast, it's coffee an hour later, eggs with cheese, and that is pretty much it. It's bland as I'll get out. And frankly, I'm a little ashamed <laughs> uh, what a boring breakfast I have compared to yours because, oh, that sounds good. Yeah, but it's predictable, right? You know how you're yes. going to react to it, right? And it it, it, is. it establishes your mood. It says, boom, baseline. I'm here. I'm ready to go. I've got my the thing I know in my stomach, and I can go forward. Yep. It is It is a breakfast I'm 100% confident in. I have never gotten a sour or bad stomach from my very simple breakfast of eggs, a little bit of grated cheese, and a fair amount of salt mm -hmm. uh, and some pepper. Mm. And, you know, yeah, it works for me. Now, Patrick, I may have served you a bowl of my steel-cut oats. I can't remember. I know I made yep. you pancakes no, once you, when you were staying yep. here. You may have had the oats, too, but what is your— I have. So you've got a big ride coming up Saturday, mm -hmm. the Chileno Valley uh, Grasshopper event. What will be on the plate or in the bowl before that ride? Uh, yogurt. Um, oh, God. Here we go. In <laughs> <laughs> instant oatmeal. <laughs> Uh, but I, I guess I should be honest. Uh, yeah, instant oatmeal, 
uh, maple syrup. Uh, I see oatmeal as kind of a maple syrup delivery device. Uh, it's just an excuse to have maple syrup, which is, oh dear Lord, that's one of my favorite things in the whole world. Anything maple, I'm in, I'm in. Mm -hmm. You could, you know, if there was a reasonable way to inject maple syrup into eggs, I, I would be the guy. Um, and then, uh, after that's done, I'll usually have a cliff bar sometime in the last hour before the event starts. Um, now, this is all because grasshoppers don't start until 10 o'clock in the morning. Back when I was racing uh, Cat 4 stuff and my race would be going off at 8 o'clock, um, I, I was unwilling to get up three hours before my race to be able to get enough food in my belly. And so I developed a practice of, and this was certainly also true for, you know, group rides that started at seven or eight o'clock in the morning. Um, if it was short, um, like a crit, I would have a cliff bar or power bar back when I still ate those. Um, and then longer races, it would be two cliff bars before the start. I just, uh, due to other circumstances in my life, I just wasn't able to get to bed early enough that getting up at five o'clock in the morning seemed like a reasonable response. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I just tended to eat less before the start and then try to fuel more often. And I think the point here being is that there's nothing random when it comes to riding and making a day great, whether that be a race or a long ride, you want to make sure you don't screw it up by souring your gut or putting the wrong thing in your stomach or experimenting with your gut lining. Um, I, I did this, I made a small error once. Uh, we ended up at a, and this is no slide on Denny's. I happen to like Denny's. Not a bad place, actually. But I went to Denny's and sat down with my teammates, and we were about to race a state roads out in Bakersfield. And I ordered uh, bacon and eggs or something, and I said, you know, I'll have the grits. Now, ah. I don't, I like grits normally, and sure. I they're kind of like oatmeal, but um, I never eat them before a race or a ride. Why I chose state roads to eat grits and especially at a den you're at denny's you get the grand slam that's what they do go for the sweet spot if you're eating out if you're at the house yeah. of pancakes don't get the french toast get pancakes because that's what they do so if you have to eat out <laughs> make sure make sure you're giving the cook a, a fair shot at giving your gut a good shot because <laughs> you don't want experimental foods on, on the big day either so Steel cut yeah. oats, uh, fatty. I'll uh, get a copy of that recipe up on uh, in the show notes for you if you need it. I am going to try that this weekend. Before I do a long ride, I am going to try your uh, your steel cut oats recipe. I've always been a big fan of uh, steel cut oats as opposed to rolled oats anyway, but. Uh, your uh, your description sounds really good. I will put in one plug for Denny's. I have eaten at Denny's a million times before. I don't even know how many races. It's when you're in Moab. It's probably the easiest uh, place to get something to eat before a race. And I always get an omelet, which is basically once again eggs. And I get it simple. You, know, you with you know, you and usually just a cheese omelet while I'm there. Because it is the closest approximation to what I normally get. I wouldn't have tried the grits. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I might have warned you off that um, in any case. I think I got dropped on the Denny's first grits. climb with a belly full of grits. <laughs> oh. 
All the pain, the humiliation. Mm -hmm. Oh, well... Uh, it's a, uh, a predictable response uh, and also fantastic sounding recipe. You can tell that I am carb starved right now, right? <laughs> it's, I and I will get to voice. that a little bit later in this uh, <laughs> in this episode. Hottie, that was a hell of a pull. Drop back and let me uh, let me pull for a minute. And right now, that is this time of year, I can guarantee you a nice, generous, wide draft. But that's not what I'm talking about. At least not yet. I've got a problem. And my, I also have a couple of solutions that sort of kind of work. I'm not sure I like them, and I'm hoping that you guys will have some better answers than the ones that I'm using. The problem, cycling shoes. For me, at least, it's a fairly new problem, and I mean that in a couple of ways. See, I used to be able to fit into any pair of size 42 cycling shoes from pretty much any company. Shimano, CD, Bontrager, Specialized, Giro... I've purchased and ridden with and worn out all of them. But in the last couple of years, that has changed. My feet have gotten wider. I'm self-diagnosed with bunions. And it is a rare pair of cycling shoes that do not hurt like hell. I've ridden rides where I have had to take the call of shame because my feet have hurt just too much to go on. And if you know anything about me and long rides, you know that that is saying something. Now, I've tried a bunch of things. I've gone to shoe repair stores and had them stretch the uppers where the bunion is. I've tried moving up a size. I've tried various different brands. I've tried moving to laces and leaving them a little bit looser at the front of the foot. And one thing that has kind of sort of worked for me slowly is breaking in shoes. I've gotten some very old specialized uh, mountain bike shoes that I took to a shoe repla- a repair place for new Velcro and a specialized place for new ratchet closers. And these fit great in spite of the fact that they look terrible and they are therefore, in spite of the fact they are more than five years old, my favorite mountain biking shoe. So that's tip number one. If you've got cycling shoes that are that fit and are not totally ruined, Hold on to them. Take them to a shoe repair place. There's a good chance you can get them into at least serviceable, although probably not good-looking condition. I've also noticed that some road shoes that started really uncomfortable have become better as I wear them, which I discovered because I had relegated a pair of road shoes to being my basement-bound trainer shoes until about two years later, they started becoming comfortable. <laughs> which surprised me. Uh, a couple of years of short riding sessions turned them from these horrible, painful shoes into pretty comfortable road shoes, and they are now my main road riding shoes. So here's the thing, guys. 23% of us, and I looked this up on Wikipedia, so you know it's true, wind up with bunions at some point. So I'm not some weird outlier. What's the solution? Should I get custom uh, shoes like Bont offers or wide-fitting uh, shoes, which I just did. I ordered some Shimano S-Fire RC9s for road and XC9 for mountain bike, both with wide feet. Or is there a better solution? Mm. Patrick, I know that you have uh, some Shimano wide shoes that, or some, some Shimano shoes that have a pretty wide toe box that you're liking a mountain bike. What other things have you tried? I know that you've tried a lot of shoes. Yeah, well... Before we go any further, can I just say 
that none of what you've said actually proves that you're not some weird outlier? (laughs) I don't claim that I'm not a weird outlier. I just think that I'm hopefully not a weird outlier. Uh, Well, you're... Do I seem weird? If I'm weird, tell me I'm weird and tell me why. Well, it has nothing to do with your feet. Ditto. But yeah, you're, you're, you're weird. I second that. Fair um, enough. <laughs> okay, so, uh, okay, on a more serious note. Um, yeah, I've been riding the XC9, uh, the mountain bike uh, shoe, in the new wide, uh, or in mm-hmm. the wide version. Crazy about that shoe. Um, All right. Also, well, we'll soon have two of us uh, being able to talk about that shoe. It should be interesting. Yeah, it's a it's a really, really nice shoe. And I mean... I've tried pretty well all the wide production shoes out there, you know, Lake, mm-hmm. all sorts of stuff. And I can say definitively, uh, you know, compared to City Mega and all those, um, the XC9, um, I haven't ridden the RC9. Uh, no, I take that back. Yes, I have ridden the RC9s as well in the wide. Um I haven't been wearing straight road shoes all that often lately. Um, but yeah, those are the, the widest production shoes on the market that I have found. So if, if a wider shoe is what gets you the, the space and comfort that you need, those shoes should do it for you. Um, now, yeah, Bont, you don't even have to go full custom with Bont. Bont offers production shoes in widths, and so I am currently riding uh, one of their wide shoes, um, and uh, really pretty impressed with it. So, hmm. you know, yeah, there are there are options out there. Um, D two, uh, Don Lampson, he's down in uh, the greater expanse of L A. He does the most incredible custom shoes. But it's not often that you actually have to go to that level of a solution. But he is somebody who's got a lot of experience in terms of working around bunions and whatnot and other screwy feet. Years ago when he had his uh, his previous company, Lamson, uh, he was reputed to be the guy that everybody who raced Ram went to. And I heard that uniformly, Ram racers had the worst feet on the planet because they spent so much time in cycling shoes pedaling. Sure. So uh, I would say I'm encouraged for you. Uh, the S-Fire shoes, you know, it's a double boa shoe, so you can get, you know, good adjustment on it. Um, it's, yeah, it's a really nice shoe. I would think that you should find success, but I don't really know your feet, so. Yeah, it's, I guess really my overarching question is not, you know, how can the world solve my foot problems as I think a lot of people wind up with sore feet because it's one of the few contact points there are with the bike and it's the one where the most, you know, force is going through. What what can any person who is suffering from painful feet when they are riding – what are the steps they can take? Is it get better shoes? Is it to go to a shoe place? Is it because it's, it's not like you can just you know keep spending you know four hundred dollars after four hundred dollars after four hundred dollars on a pair of shoes, right? It's getting and what feels fine in the bike store 
or theoretically ought to feel fine when you make an online order an hour and a half later can feel so painful that you just have to get off the bike. I mean, I have literally been unable to pedal in a very nice pair of CD shoes just because I was hurting so bad. Wow. How about you, Hadi? I mean, are what's your what is your foot solution? You're an analy- an analytical thinker about well, bikes, right? To prove you're not an outlier, Fatty. I mean, nearly everyone I've run into on the bike has complained sometime about foot pain. The guy I train with a lot, Sean Holderbaum, who you know, last yeah. summer, Sean and I would be training for Leadville, and halfway to three quarters of the way through our ride, I'd start dropping him on climbs. He's a much stronger rider than me. Why am I dropping him on climbs? Because his feet were screaming at him in pain. He just couldn't handle the pain, and he would have to back off the pedals. Now, he's tried, he tried all, he did the same thing you did, went through all kinds of shoes, including the S-Fire. He had that shoe as well. And he's, his feet have finally found a home in Bont. So he's in Bont right mm-hmm. now. He found out he had a wider foot than he realized. So he's in Bont, and he's in good shape. Myself, I have a narrow foot. I, I am a I could be a model for CD. I could wear their standard <laughs> shoe. Even it is I can cinch up fairly well. So I have a nice narrow foot and I have no issues with the sides of my feet running into the shoe like you're having. Uh, what I do have is a very wavy bottom of my foot. Like if you if you took the profile of my foot, it would look like like the ocean or the or a pool kind of waving up and down. It's very wavy toe to heel. And hmm. what this caused me, the pain I ran into a couple years ago, that's actually about five years ago, was extreme metatarsal pain. The balls on my feet felt like stones, like I had stones underneath them when I would pedal. It was just awful. And I did the same thing you did. I tried different shoes. I tried different uh, off-the-shelf insoles. And what I finally did is I went to the guy who makes custom orthotics. Uh, and I ended up with a pair of carbon fiber custom orthotics the, the the orthotics the the insoles themselves cost more than any of my shoes but they fixed my problem i can slip those into any of my cycling shoes and i'm in good shape the one other little trick you might be able to try too is you know after you've worn your shoes and you get out of them put shoe trees in them i mean that's like the old hmm. thing remember your dad and his wingtips he'd put the oh, shoe yeah. tree I have a nice pair of, uh, they're made out of wood. I don't know what kind of wood, pine or something. And I, you can slip shoe trees in your shoes. It'll help keep the shape, uh, pull out any sweat, unnecessary sweat too. Um, so that that can work for you too. So yeah, you may want to see somebody other than the bike shop guy or the guy selling shoes at the, at the bike shop. Maybe if somebody who can do orthotics for you too might be able to help you. Yeah. You know, considering how much time I spend on bikes, there is li- – well, I won't say literally no price that would be too high for me to have permanently comfortable feet. Um, but, wow, I I will, of course, follow up uh, with uh, how these S-Fires go. I have road and mountain bike versions. And, uh, you know, if I continue to have pain, maybe a trip to Bont or somewhere else. So uh, more to come on this one. But I think the the one little tip that I had nestled in there is a good one for anyone who rides that is take the time to wear your shoes in and get them so that they fit a little bit at a time. You for sure do not want to find out that your shoes fit poorly in 2 hours into what should be a 5 hour ride, right? Mm-hmm. So wear your shoes an hour at a time and to wear them in, get them so that they fit you right. I think that's going to end my poll. We're ready for a first break. When we come back, men, women, and prize money. 
Well, here's a bowl of steaming Quaker oatmeal. And I can't think of a healthier way to start the day. Cost you one nickel and four pennies. So if you can't be bothered with nickels and pennies, throw them in a jar. Start an oatmeal fund, Quaker Oats. It's the right thing to do. Health IQ uses science and data to secure lower rates on life insurance for cyclists. They do this by qualifying endurance athletes through quizzes that demonstrate their knowledge of and adherence to a healthy lifestyle. Health IQ follows applicants all the way through the process, from when they submit interest to starting applications, from going through underwriting to policy in force. The policy is underwritten by one of our top partners, an insurer. Health IQ's underwriting advantages include family history, reducing your chance of being penalized for adverse family health history if you are otherwise healthy, low resting heart rate. Most carriers will penalize people if their heart rate is too low. We help them recognize that this is a sign of your excellent health and fitness. The Health IQ Advantage is their unique mortality model on the health conscious, and they have lower rates for health conscious people, just like a good driver gets savings on auto insurance. And they have unique underwriting calculations that replace BMI with waist-to-hip ratio and more. To see if you qualify, get your free quote today at healthiq.com forward slash paceline. Baseline is back. Hadi and I have taken our polls. Patrick, move to the front. It's your turn. <laughs> okay. So a couple days ago, I published a piece by pro downhill writer Amanda Batty. It was an open letter to Podium Girls. Uh, among the many spot-on observations that Amanda made was that the presence of Podium Girls does nothing constructive to help shape the idea that women deserve to be compensated the same as men. Uh before I go any further, I, I should do well and check with the two of you on your views of Podium Girls. Fatty, what say you, for or against? Well, I've never been in a race personally where there are Podium Girls, so maybe that says something about the kind of races I do personally. But in shows that are televised and there are Podium Girls, I fast forward past that part. Okay. Hottie? I don't need podium girls to enjoy the sport, whether it be me or the guys I'm watching on TV. Just it doesn't they don't make a difference to me from for enjoying the sport. Okay. Well, so let's just say that I was uh, <laughs> I was disappointed with some of the responses to her open letter. Uh, any number of people charged that women are paid according to what the market will bear. Uh, I think capitalism shows that the market will happily bear injustice. Cheating people helps to concentrate resources, uh, money, in the hands of the already powerful. So I'm of the opinion that if we expect the market to lead the way in justice, we might as well all quit now. If I were to pull a Rip Van Winkle routine right now, when I come back in 20 years, any positive cultural evolutions that occur during my absence are unlikely to have been led by capitalism. At least that's my opinion. As it stands, in most bike races, women are not paid the same as men. There are some notable exceptions, but generally speaking, the winner of the women's race isn't paid as well as the winner of the men's race. Sometimes she's not even uh, as well paid as the entire top 10 uh, in the men's race. So, you know, here's the thing. I, the last thing in the world I want is to be called a social justice warrior. I 
however, do think it's important to do the right thing when you know it is the right thing to do. And to me, it's pretty obvious that a woman, a woman who spends just as many hours training as a man, watches her diet as much as any male rider, works on her skills to the same degree as any dude, deserves to be compensated the same in races. To me, the only real question is how deep to pay. Having worked on races where pay equity was addressed, there was a question of how to right-size the payout relative to the field size. If the men's race paid 25 deep and had a field of 100 riders, but the women's race only had 35 riders, do you still pay 25 deep or do you pay the top quarter of the riders, which reflects paying the top quarter of the men's field? I think paying based on field size is a step in the right direction, but honestly, I really think that exactly the same money should be given to the women as the men. Consider it a private, sec private sector Title IX. We've treated women poorly for so long, and a completely equal payout is a way to show how far we are willing to go to make things right. Again, that's just my opinion. But I'm curious, Fatty, how about you? Should the hammer get the same money as you if you both win an event or if you both come in fifth? You know, what do you think? Uh, I would say that in reality, uh, uh, Lisa, a.k.a. the hammer, has gotten a check <laughs> for racing where I have never gotten a check. And so, I mean, that tells you, well, that she's faster than I am for one thing. But um, I, I, a race comes to mind from last year um, where there was equal pay for women and men's fields in spite of the fact that the women's field was a lot smaller. And Lisa, in spite of the fact that she was one of three women in her category, um, you know, she got she got the same as the fastest man in the same age group category. What will that mean next year? Probably that some women are going to recognize that there is a you know that there is money to be made. It is good karma for that race promoter for being a strict equal pay. And I think that if we want to have bigger women's fields, we need to have something that will draw a bigger woman's field. So I, I, that's a long way around towards saying my experience uh, secondhand with seeing a equal pay regardless of field size was very positive and I think is going to result in, you know, it result in larger fields of in, in the women's category going forward. So, yeah, I'm in favor of strict equal, uh, strict equal pay field size regardless. It is not the racer's fault or credit as to who else shows up, only how fast they themselves go. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. Hottie, how about you? I like riding with women. I, I love it when they're in group rides. I, I like getting alongside and, and watching them pull and helping them pull and having them help me. I, I have followed more ladies' wheels than I, than I can remember. I find them to be fantastic athletes, especially at the high level, and everybody's good as some of the male counterparts, some of their male counterparts. I see no reason why they shouldn't be paid the same. Now, a promoter might. A promoter could... You know, dream up all kinds of reasons why, well, if I have to pay them more money, that means less for the men. Or if I have to pay them, that means I'm not going to have as many women's fields out there, you know. I mean, I'm sure they can dream up all kinds of nonsense as to why this is not happening now. 
Uh, but the fact is, I think Fatty just pointed out accurately, if they do want to help grow the sport, I mean, you know, we have a, a lot of men out there already. It seems to me that if you want to start growing the sport, maybe look to the the thing that's the, the smaller thing and try to grow it. That would be the women's fields. The women's fields are smaller, yes. You don't have as many categories out there, yes, at a crit or a road race. If you want to expand that, if you want more revenue coming your way, you entice that. Say, hey, look, we're going to reward you. If you come out here and risk your skin, you're going to be rewarded just like any male racer here. So I, I'm all for this. Let's get, let's bring that prize money up. Um, let's let's start establishing. And this is, you know, Patrick, as you know, this is a societal thing. I mean, women have struggled in all corners of of the United States and and the earth, for that matter, to to be treated equally. Mm-hmm. Um, corporate America is a prime example of that. It just doesn't, it's not equitable for them. And it's, and cycling could take the lead on this and show the world that, Hey, look, we believe that women belong here and should be paid just as much. Look, they crash, they lose just as much skin as I do. Right. Yep. How yep. is their risk any less than mine? It's not, <laughs> it just isn't. <laughs> and they should be rewarded for what they're doing out there. Yeah, yeah, it's a tough one. I uh, this is the worst argument ever. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm I'm relieved that we're of of a mind on this. You know that we share opinions on it. Uh, the number of comments that we've had to the post is approaching eighty at this point, which puts it in I think like the top five posts of all time for RKP in terms mm-hmm. of comment numbers. But, you know, I've been really dismayed by uh, some of the arguments that people have made, you know, um, you know, one being that should be strictly market based. And, you know, I, I observe that, well, if you do that, then, you know, obviously Olympic medals should be of different sizes based on the importance of that sport. You know, you'd have guys, you know, the, the swimmers, you know, getting these huge like belt buckle sized things, you know, like Leadville belt buckles. And then what would the archers get? You know, it'd be something on a little string. Um, you know, who knows where cycling would fit and all that. Um, and so I just, I, I'm big on equality. I think societies prosper more. Um, and you know, all you, all you have to do, if you want a reminder of how bad things get, if you just let a bunch of white guys, uh, run things from one room. Just watch Mad Men again. <laughs> That's all you have to do. You know, left to our own devices, yeah. a bunch of white guys will will do some awful, awful things. Yeah. And, and I really do think that if uh, promoters will take the responsibility and take the lead by making equal pay, that the fields will come. It's the inequity in the number of entrance in uh, the men's and women's fields, that isn't a, a, a given. That doesn't have to be anyone who has ever lined up at a marathon or a half marathon will see that it is roughly equal men and women there. It's not that the women are not looking for something to do. It's that they are feel that they've been marginalized. Mm-hmm. If you make the proactive step of saying, we believe that everyone deserves this, uh, you know, a shot at making a, a payday, you know, then you're going to get, you're going to get recognition for that sometime down the line. You just have to, someone has to take the first jump, right? Someone mm-hmm. has to take that first step. Yes. Yes. Cool. Well, thanks guys.
All righty. Let's get on to the picks, guys. I am going to kick off, and my pick is a time, 6 o'clock p.m. specifically. There's something magical about that time of day, which I discover every year as I begin to once again take my training and my dieting seriously. It's basically this. If I want to lose weight, the single most important thing I can do is have the hard and fast rule that I stop eating for the day at 6 p.m. No snacks, no second dinner. This is a hard rule for me to live by, and at first, it's an extremely hard rule for me to sleep by. But I'm about three days into it and about two and a half pounds down. It makes that much of a difference. If you're having a rough time getting your post-holiday weight loss off the ground, it's a good place to begin. Let me know how it works for you. My pick, wow. 6 o'clock p.m. Okay, wait. Uh, so you're having dinner 5-ish? Oh, I'm eating at 6. Oh. So that's when, that's when I have the final eating of the day. Okay. And I don't take very long to eat dinner. <laughs> it's, you know, <laughs> I just snarf it down and it's gone. Okay. So, yeah. And what time What time in the morning do you eat? Um, I generally, uh, my schedule has changed recently with having a full-time job at a regular office. And I have breakfast usually around 1030 in the morning. Holy cow, dude. So, wow. So you're you're fasting uh 16 hours? I don't know. I haven't really done the math. I'm, but no, I'm absolutely not fasting. I'm certainly having water and I'm having coffee with lots of cream and sugar. <laughs> no, that's fasting. <laughs> Patrick's got it right. You are fasting 16 hours. That's what you're doing. And you're trying you're firing up your hopefully your fat burning by doing so. Yeah. yeah. That yeah. that crumbling sound in the background is my head caving in. <laughs> <laughs> I I promise though, and it, the the breakfast time being so late in the day for me, that's new and that's different, and I'm not sure that's where it's going to land. I'm still trying to figure out how to make my new work schedule figure into my life schedule and all of those things. Right now, that's about what time it usually is. By waiting to eat until sometime later in the day. I seem to, you know, then I can have lunch a little bit later in the day as well. And so I, I, I tend to just do better, feel better. And then after dinner, um, that's when I'm hitting trainer road for, you know, hour, hour and a half. And so I'm burning off a lot of the dinner right then. And of course, drinking a lot while I'm doing it, but, you know, no calories. Wow. So. Hmm. Wow. It's work. You know, it it works. It's hard at first. and the But, you know, the hunger is only the one thing it is when i am going to bed on an empty stomach it takes some adjusting to be able to get to sleep easily when you are used to snacking before bedtime which is what i used to do and tend to sort of fall back into that habit again every year (laughs) wow that's something isn't it I mean, I've heard the value and am aware of the value of doing a 12-hour fast. So for me, that means being finished with dinner by 8 o'clock and not eating anything before 8 o'clock in the morning. Um, Even that for me is not entirely easy, but I know the value it has. But 16 hours, no food? No, I I would, I, I don't know, I would desiccate. (laughs) Well, my metabolism is different than yours. Um 
but and you know, sixteen hours probably a little bit more than I uh, than I will normally settle on. And I, like I said, still figuring it out. Anyway, that's a long talk about what I thought was going to be a fairly short pick. <laughs> I appreciate I appreciate you uh, saying that I've uh, given you something to think about, though. Yeah. Patrick, what's your pick? Okay, so last weekend I got together with some friends to make manual machines. Um, what's a manual machine? Okay, a manual machine is a device that holds the rear wheel of a bike so that a rider can practice the move necessary to get the front wheel off the ground and balance so that it stays up. A manual is different from a wheelie. A wheelie is when you pedal the bike and use the torque of the drivetrain and balance to keep the front wheel up off the ground, okay? You have to keep pedaling to keep the wheelie going. A manual is all balance. And I've been unable to learn the move for the simple reason that between clipless pedals and my, we'll call it reticence to crash and bash my head into the ground. Um, I just, I didn't have a good way to learn it, you know, especially now that I've had my 50th birthday. The bigger issue though is, you know, it's not that hard to pull off a wheelie or a manual on a hardtail mountain bike. You know, getting that front wheel up is not that hard. But once you move to full suspension bikes, like 27.5, you know, bikes or worse, a full suspension 29er, getting that front wheel up is really difficult. And so the manual machine gives you a way to actually do this in a, a very low consequence manner, uh, perhaps even zero consequence, because one of the things we did when we built these was include a little strap that keeps you from actually flipping over backwards. Um, so yeah, got together over at a buddy's place. Um, he has actual woodworking skills and had lots of tools. Uh, a friend of ours gave us a bunch of lumber. Um, they were from some job site and I don't know why they weren't using them. They were dirty, but we cleaned them up and used them. It took uh, a bunch of two by fours, a little bit of plywood. You know, we got some nylon webbing with a little tension buckle to do the strap thing. And uh, you push your rear wheel in and boom, there you go. You can practice it. Um, I mean, the thing You're is- You're going to put plans up online? <laughs> um, there's a post that has just gone live today that shows what we did. It doesn't actually include plans like a, you know, an actual blueprint or something, but I mm -hmm. give a, a list of, you know, what the various materials were and the lengths of each of the boards. So people should be able to figure it out pretty well. There are photos. Yeah, it's pretty straightforward. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I really like the idea that even though I've had my 50th birthday, I'm not done learning new things. I like the idea of challenging myself. And not just challenging myself, but developing a new skill and then putting that new skill to use. Um, <laughs> all this said, yeah, I've got this cool uh, wood contraption down in my garage. <laughs> I still can't manual. I'm getting closer. Um, and then I've got friends heckling me saying, oh, well, you know, it's all different when you've got the front wheel spinning. It's like, well, there's no way for me to get the front wheel spinning. You know, they've got the strap going through the front wheel so that I don't die. <laughs> I got a long way to go, guys, but oh my God, this thing's fun. Oh, you've got a long way to go, but you are, I mean, you've got a plan and you're making progress. I think that is very cool. I will look forward to the follow-up conversation on the Paceline and, of course, the article on RKP. Hottie, you've got the final pick of the Paceline. I am nearing 
my one-year anniversary at my new job, which probably means it's no longer new. In fact, uh, I settled in pretty quickly to the change of scene. Once the job training was done and I had regular hours, I started writing in most days. Now, at my old job, I used to store everything at work. Once a week, I would drive and cart clothes in, food, whatever I needed. But at the new place, I simply don't have the storage space, so I carry in most of what I need. What I ride to work, as in bikes, can vary. One day it's the Choach, sometimes the Indy Fab, occasionally the Criss Cross, and a couple times a mountain bike. That means no racks and bags to carry my stuff. I carry my cargo on my back. I have tried Musettes, and they work great to prevent the sweaty back, but I'm really partial to backpacks. I guess it's the 10-year-old in me. So when I found one specifically designed for commuting and sweaty back prevention, I had to have it. It being the Timbuk2 Raider Pack. The air mesh ventilated back panel is not foolproof, but it's better than most. It was designed in conjunction with uh, San Francisco's Mission Cycling Club. They wanted something they could ride with during their pre-work raids to the Marin Headlands. In addition to being super light and well-vented, it has two internal shoe pockets, two external slots that act like jersey pockets, and it comes with a removable folding board that holds a shirt and keeps it relatively wrinkle-free. There's a little loop to hang a light and a reflective panel that shows up in headlights. A heavy lock would probably overwhelm this pack, but I regularly stuff clothing, a tumbler full of coffee, two meals, wallet, and phone in this thing without a problem. So my pace line pick is the Timbuk2 Raider Pack. It is always so great when you find something that is gear you can use every day. And a lot of bike commuters are going to find that pretty handy. Uh, great pick there, Hottie. So, Patrick, what is coming up in RKP? Well, we've got um, a link up in a new post to the Flow Genome Project. Uh, this is something I'm, I've got a loose affiliation with, and they're looking for people to take a survey on flow and creativity. And so I'd really love to direct people to that so that they can get some more respondents before they close this survey. Uh, they're doing some really cutting edge work on flow states. So uh, there'll be a link in our show notes. Sweet, I'll look forward to taking that myself. I think that's the show, guys. One last reminder, find us on Apple Podcasts. Take a moment, rate us, review us. For Hottie and Patrick, I'm Fatty. Thanks for listening to show number 102 of The Pace Line. I brought it home, I get on the bike, and I ride it down the street, and I grab the front brake, and it starts howling at me. <laughs> like that. I mean, I'm like, oh, my God, what the hell is that? All this brake noise. I'm like, what the frig is this? 